stories given in this podcast are both true and fiction, and not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Have your nightmare. Have your nightmare. Welcome to Info from the A, the place where nightmares are made. In my restless dreams, I see it. Milford, Georgia. Oh, Milford. This was a small community home to numerous auto industries. But in 1963, this small peaceful town was also home to two fearsome gangs. I should know. I was part of one of them. My name is Jack L. Camino. My buddies, Johnny Etzel, Gary Olds, and I were members of the Thunderbirds. We controlled the south side of town closest to the industrial park. Our rivals were the Freebirds. They took the the north side of town near the woods. Our gangs met often, especially at the malt shop in town. And we always got into fights. Most of the time, the Thunderbirds came out victorious. I think that was because of Johnny. Johnny was also had our backs and was the toughest son of a bitch I ever knew and no one ever got seriously hurt aside from the usual scrapes and bruises. So when we got into a scrap, I knew that things would always turn out all right and that was until the day we took things just too far. It was late October and the Firebirds leader Ricky DeSoto decided it was time to put an end to our little rivalry. So he called for the mother of all fights, an all-out rumble at the old drainage tunnel. This was in the woods. Personally, I wasn't too hot on the idea, but Johnny had already agreed to DeSoto's terms so I knew it was too late to back down now. On the night before Halloween, we met at the tunnel. 
God, I still remember that awful smell. The waste of the waste of everyone in Milford all ended up there. Johnny, Gary, and I didn't know what to expect. We slowly crept through the tunnel, and it was nearly pitch black, illuminated only by the bright moonlight from the night sky. After about five minutes, we saw a bright light in the distance, and it was a burning steel barrel, and standing next to it were the firebirds. Along with the Soto were Eddie Camaro and Jimmy Studebaker. And I'm sorry, his name was not Camaro, it's Camaro and then Jimmy Studebaker. It was our immediate realization that something wasn't right. DeSoto and Johnny had agreed to no weapons, but Studebaker had a length of chain and Camera had a lead of pipe. DeSoto appeared unarmed, but we knew he always carried a switchblade in his denim jacket. After a short cordial greeting, the firebirds charged at us with nothing to defend ourselves. I quickly scanned around and found an empty bear bottle. I busted the end off against the wall of the tunnel. Then Gary remembered his slingshot. He'd been carrying in his pockets for a while. He used it uh, to plank squirrels with kicks. He found some rocks and began pelting the firebirds. Camera took a rock to the head and fell to the ground unconscious, his head bleeding from the impact. Johnny picked up his pipe. Just as DeSoto rushed him, suddenly in the, in the midst of the struggle, DeSoto whipped out the switchblade and flicked open the blade. It was a spine-chilling sound you never wanted to hear, especially in a fight because you knew what would come next. The next thing Johnny knew, DeSoto had stabbed him in the side. I immediately rushed to his side. He was hurting, but alive. In a fit of rage, I grabbed the bloody blade out of Johnny and charged at Studebaker. I was like a wild predator with a single desire for blood. I slashed him across his chest and then stabbed him in the stomach. Studebaker slumped to his knees, weak from the blood loss, before I fully realized what I had just done. Studebaker was dead. As I stood over his body, breathing heavily, I soon realized the fighting had stopped. Johnny, Gary, and DeSoto seemed just as shocked as me. I was shaking my face white as a ghost, but before anyone could say anything, we heard the distinct sound of the police siren. It was the fuzz. Someone in the area must have reported the noise coming from the tunnel. Immediately, Gary and I grabbed Johnny and we started towards the other end of the tunnel and we turned at the, and saw DeSoto kneeling beside his fallen comrade. We started to holler out to him to split, but before we could, we saw a bright light coming towards us as long with shouting. The sheriff's deputies were closing in and we decided to bail out and leave our rivals out to dry. 
Somehow, we escaped unseen. Once we got back into town, we took Johnny to the nearby hospital. We lied and told them that we were mugged. The doctors didn't seem to be too suspicious. So, they took Johnny into the emergency room. The doctors said that Johnny would be fine, but he needed to stay overnight. So Gary and I left. Once we got back to our neighborhood, Gary and I parted ways and returned to our homes. When I got back, my folks were watching the news. My heart froze as I saw the image of Jimmy Studebaker. The sheriff had DeSoto and Camera in custody. Charged with murder of Studebaker when they found DeSoto's knife in Studebaker's body. I knew DeSoto was up the creek. I didn't say much to my folks about what I did that night and went to bed haunted about what happened. I had never killed anyone before, but on the other hand, no one knew it was me besides Gary, Johnny, and DeSoto. Camera couldn't remember anything thanks to the bump on his head, and DeSoto was catatonic about what happened. So it seemed my secret was safe, or so I thought. The next morning, I was jolted awake by the phone, and I dashed to answer it before my folks could. I picked it up and Gary was on the other end. He said that he wouldn't say anything to anyone about the night before, and neither would Johnny. Gary then told me to go meet him at the hospital to pick up Johnny. When we got to the hospital, there uh, were sheriff cars all around. Nervously, we continued inside and were greeted with a gruesome sight. There was blood all around the ER and a coroner was bringing out a body covered with a blanket to take to the morgue. When Gary asked who the victim was, our hearts sank like a pile of stones when we heard the coroner say Johnny Etzel. The sheriff at the scene said that someone had snuck into the ER the night before and murdered Johnny in his hospital bed. The deputy said that they couldn't find who did this. No one saw the killer come in or out and no evidence was found at the scene. They said it was if a ghost had killed Johnny. The only clue they had was a message written in blood on the wall in Johnny's room that read, It's not over yet realizing who we were. The sheriff questioned Gary and I briefly, but soon let us go on our way. As we left the hospital, we knew something was wrong. DeSoto was still in, uh, in whatever, so he couldn't be the killer. He was still incarcerated. We continued to walk along and decided to grab a bite to eat at the local diner while we gathered our thoughts as we were finished up our lunch. Gary and I saw about the sheriff's car zoom past the diner. Leaving money on the table for the bill, we immediately ran out to see what the commotion was about. The car was heading to the north side of town. Gary and I decided to see what the commotion was about, so 
We got on our bikes and followed the cars to the other side of town near the woods. The area was mostly farmland that ran near a creek and we found several cars parked around the old mill near the creek. We finally crept closer to get a better look. Making sure to keep ourselves hidden, there was a bunch of sheriff deputies carrying out a dead body. We soon realized that it was Camera. Apparently Camera was traumatized by the whole ordeal and hung himself from the rafters of the mill. There was another bloody message scribed on the side of the mill that read, You're next. Gary and I soon fled the scene unnoticed. We decided to go home. So I let Gary on his way. Later that night was Halloween. The little kids were out trick or treating in the neighborhood. I was at home listening to The Wanderer by Dion on the radio. Suddenly, my rock and roll was interrupted by an urgent bulletin. Ricky DeSoto had escaped from prison. I immediately called up Gary and told him what happened. We soon realized that DeSoto must have been behind the killings. A bloody act of revenge. We decided to put a stop to the horror at the source, the old tunnel. Gary and I armed ourselves and met up outside the woods. Gary had a lug wrench and I had a baseball bat. We slowly approached the tunnel, stepping lightly with the chilling prospect of coming back so soon. As we walked into the tunnel, we heard a voice call out. That's far enough, boys. We stopped dead in our tracks, slowly turned around to see DeSoto holding a 45 coat in his hand, pointed right at us. We braced ourselves and told DeSoto that we knew it was him who killed Johnny and wrote the messages with a snicker, DeSoto replied. Very clever, boys. But there's more to the story than you think. We've been waiting for this moment for some time now. We? Gary replied. Before we could say anything, DeSoto was stabbed in the back. He fell to the ground and standing behind him was none other than Jimmy Studebaker. Studebaker looked absolutely horrifying. His face was putrid and decaying. His shirt and jeans were tattered and he just looked bloody and ghoulish. Writhing in agony, DeSoto struggled to speak. J Jimmy, why? With a toothy grin, the bloody switchblade in hand, the zombified Studebaker replied, Sorry, Ricky, but you've outlived your usefulness. He then proceeded to stab DeSoto in the head, killing him instantly. Suddenly, it all became clear to Gary and me. The killings, the messages, the death of Camera, the words the sheriff said at the hospital. The killer was Studebaker the whole time. We had helped DeSoto escape from prison to help him get revenge on us. After disposing of DeSoto, he quickly turned his attention on us. On us. 
Gary and I ran at him with our melee weapons, but Studebaker grabbed them out of our hands. He broke my bat and bent Gary's lug wrench. The ghoulish Studebaker then lunged at me and I closed my eyes in horror, but then I was jolted awake by six gunshots. I looked to see that Gary had grabbed DeSoto's gun and shot Studebaker. Studebaker fell over in front of me. Gary knelt down to see if Studebaker was dead. Suddenly, Studebaker jolted up and stabbed Gary in the neck with his knife. I ran to Gary's side. I'll never forget the words he said with dying, his dying last breath. Run, Jack, run! Gary breathed his last breath as Studebaker trudged towards me like a B-movie monster. I ran for dear life out of the other end of the tunnel and Studebaker chased me all the way out of the woods to the gas tankers in a nearby field. Suddenly Studebaker disappeared right in front of me, causing me to fall to the ground. He slowly approached and it seemed like curtains for me. Suddenly, I spotted an abandoned kerosene lantern sitting on a tree stump. Thinking quickly, I grabbed it and hurled it at Studebaker. The next thing I knew, Studebaker, a writhing ball of fire he was. He shambled towards the gas tankers in agony as I darted away like a bat out of hell. I took over behind an embankment just as the tankers exploded and I swear it was like a front row seat to an A-bomb test. When the smoke and fire cleared, I peeked out from the embankment and to see the entire field charred black and no sign of Studebaker or tankers anywhere. It seemed that Studebaker had finally been taken to another place in a puff of a smoke. Slightly singed but triumphant, I quietly staggered back into town. I never told anyone about what happened. Well, until now, of course. It's been about 20 years now to this day, and I'm still haunted by that night in 1963. I have since moved away from Milford and I got a foreman job at the General Motors factory in Canton. As far as I know, the woods are long gone, replaced by reasonable, affordable suburban housing. Yet despite the changes made, the old drain tunnel still remains, sealed off separated from the subdivision by a chain-linked fence and a keep-out sign. Yeah, like that'll ever stop anyone, but no one ever went near the tunnel again and it stands as a crypt filled with dead memories from the past, best left forgotten, yet as I learned with Studebaker, some memories, some memories never truly die.